broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Thank you and uh, good afternoon. Uh, we are absolutely delighted today to have as our guest Erwin uh, Bernstein, uh, who is the owner and CEO of uh, Allgate and also CMS Services. Allgate is a master servicing company that Irwin founded. CMS is a company that provides compliance services to the accounts receivable uh, management industry. Uh, I'm I'm really pleased that Irwin could make time from his busy schedule to meet with us here in Atlanta today. He is both an attorney and CPA by training, an awesome combination for uh, an industry as challenging and complex as accounts receivables management. Irwin has over 30 years of uh, risk management experience um, and as a leader in financial services and in collection industries. Um, he's, he started, I think, at uh, Dean Witter uh, in terms of his experience as a financial services executive. And he has a really interesting story about how he got into collections. Erwin, um, could you kind of take us through sure. how you got well, started? Sure. Michael, thank you so much for inviting me down to Atlanta for this uh, opportunity. I'm looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to having some fun together. At Dean Witter, I was head of institutional sales for their derivatives unit. The derivatives unit was the original funder of the startup of the Discover card. We had a lot of excess capital. That capital was used. Um, The chairman of Dean Witter came up with this crazy idea. He was going to start a new credit card. Remember, Dean Witter used to be part of Sears. So they knew the Sears credit card. They wanted to create something with a little bit broader appeal. Um, He went to the board and said, here's my program. Year one, we're going to lose $100 million. Year two, we're going to lose 80 to $120 million. And then we're going to have a profitable business. Um, So it was the excess capital from our division that actually began the Discover card. And through that experience, I was able to know uh, as the head of international business for Dean Witter, whenever there was an international issue that came up, I was the person who worked with Discover Card to uh, execute. And when I left the futures industry, someone introduced me to the accounts receivables area, and it was folks from Discover Card who took me around and taught me the industry. And I think you started telling me that you had one specific transaction, which was quite <clears throat> large uh, internationally that you had to collect, and that was your first real live opportunity where you got to get your hands dirty. And I think it was how much money? So um, there was a billion dollars, billion dollars, unfortunately. Oh, my God. Um, I had actually been in Southeast Asia or in Asia collecting um, on a defaulted account from the Chinese government. And when I showed up at the offices, I was told that the man who I had been scheduled to meet with had left five minutes earlier to go to Shanghai. Um, We had gotten together on the phone. We agreed to meet in London the following January or the following February. The day I was leaving, I was told that Bering Banks had failed. Nick Leeson had traded the company into bankruptcy, uh, leaving a billion dollar hole. I was sent... Uh, to London, and I was told, don't come back to the United States until all the money is collected. So you came back to the United States, so we assume you collected the spent, money. Spent uh, one so. month, I um, spent a week in London working yeah. with the creditors' committees in London, flew out to Japan, um, and we were able to collect the money. Fortunately, by selling 
the remains of the bank to another bank, um, to ING, and and putting together a consortium of um, New York Stock Exchange companies mm-hmm. that were willing to participate in the movement of the business. It was actually a very interesting experience because every day we open up the Wall Street Journal, we'd listen to the television, and we hear why the markets go up or down. Right. The one day that I can tell you with certain, there were actually two days I can tell you with certainty why a market did what it did. Mm-hmm. One of the days was the day that the stock market, it was during this bearings crisis, the stock market opened up 400 points lower, and it was because bearing the ING had agreed to only buy the European assets of Bering and not Asia. Okay. And there were going to be three failures on the New York Stock Exchange that okay. afternoon. Wow. We convinced ING to change their policy okay. or to change their plan. Okay. Um, the stock market went from down 400 uh-huh. to up 300 for the uh-huh. day. Uh-huh. That was, it never was reported in the newspaper. Right. But it was fascinating to see what really moves the market. Wow. The other time was a day when... Um, a, a big employment number came out, market started to go down and then rallied very quickly. And there were all these stories about why the market had hit support and started to go up. The reality was someone on our trading desk had made a mistake and entered a very large order into the marketplace. Oops. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what were the lessons learned from that experience? Uh, risk control is critical. Okay. You have to understand policies and procedures. The reason bearings had failed was because people got blinded by the money that this trader was making. And they were unwilling to question whether it made sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have to always make certain that the money guys are not making all the decisions, but that a risk manager is involved in questioning and challenging. And if something is too good to be true, is too good to be true. It's usually too good to be true. Uh-huh. Now, take a, take our listeners through that experience then from Dean Witter and, and Discover Card to Ravinia, a fund that you founded, what was it now, 12 years ago or so? so? 2003, um, I had left Dean Witter after the Dean Witter Morgan Stanley merger. Was um, Our division was sold to a French bank, and there were some ethical reasons that I felt very uncomfortable where I was. Turns out that I was right because when a new chairman of the bank was hired, the first thing he did was fire my boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew he was bad, but I didn't think it would be the very first transaction that the new chairman would do. Um, but some clients had given me some money. I was executing trades on their behalf. We had done very nicely, and I was having to return capital because the trade was becoming more and more difficult to execute. Someone approached me and said, if you've made money for someone, don't return it, find something else to do. Why don't you look at the AR industry? And they gave me an example that included a portfolio of Discover Card consumer debt. And I said, well, gee, I know those guys. Why don't I go talk to them? I went, spent a long time with the management of Discover Card. They explained to me why there's money left in portfolios that can be purchased, why they walk away and they leave that asset for someone else. And then I spent six months being trained by their head of recovery. And we I traveled with him visiting agencies mm-hmm. and learning what to look for in a good agency. Mm-hmm. Um, I had built risk management systems before, used artificial intelligence, but I, in order to create a credit score and price a portfolio, 
you need both the score and history. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any history of past collections. Mm-hmm. So I started Ravinia Funding as a way to fund debt buyers. Okay. And as I gained more knowledge in the space, I began to move from strictly funding debt buyers to actually doing some debt purchasing on my own. Eventually, I recognized that I am a much better risk manager than a risk taker. Okay. Um, There's a lot of reasons. I can look at a portfolio and give you the 20 reasons why not to buy it. Um, And I'll sometimes overlook the diamonds that might be hidden. So I recognize, I felt I had a very good portfolio management tool and knowledge base and organization. So I shifted from the buying side to management and risk management specifically. Okay. And so what were some of the uh, criteria then that you used to help your debt buyer clients manage their risk? How did, how, and, and how did you assess them? You have to start with reputation. Unfortunately, uh, the legal system is designed for people who respect the legal system and respect their word. Um, so you want to start with, are you comfortable with the person? Mm-hmm. If you're not comfortable with a person, don't spend the money on a lawyer. Just walk away and go. So on it's to intangible. The Some of it's intangible. There's, there's do you trust. Do you have shared values? Is that- you have to have confidence in who you're doing business with. You have to look at someone and say, I'll do business with this gentleman with a handshake. And I don't care whether there's a contract. Wow. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I, <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of the approach that I've taken to business today. If I... I'm not saying I don't use contracts, I do, but if I believe that I have to rely upon the contract, I'd rather walk away from the transaction. Then it's a matter of doing due diligence. You have to, there's a lot of information on the internet. Some of it's true, some of it's fake. Um, You have to gather information about the knowledge about a portfolio. Um, And you have to recognize, especially when you're working with debt buyers, you can't get someone else's information about a portfolio because everyone works a file differently. Are you going to use a resale strategy, which is hard to do today? Are you going to be using general regular collection agencies? Are Mm -hmm. you going to immediately put something into legal? Mm -hmm. If you put something immediately into legal, you Mm -hmm. might expect to put your initial cost plus in another 50 to 100% of the purchase price in legal costs Mm -hmm. before you start seeing a recovery. So you might have a longer, uh, a larger, yeah. yeah, you'll have a longer curve, more potential, but you're going to be, have to be much more patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to develop your business model and then based upon your business model, try to develop the liquidation curve and you can never make your money strictly on the recovery. You have to know what you can afford to pay. You have to be willing to walk away if the prices get too high. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I I see a lot of debt buyers who also do the collection work. Sometimes they price in what they expect to get in the commissions for the collection effort. They have to recognize that as an an investor, they have to separate themselves and recognize there's two businesses and they want to look at each portfolio as an investment, forgetting about the need to feed a collection floor. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing for people to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the underwriting processes that you've seen in the industry and when you were at Ravinia? I mean, are there best practices in underwriting that you saw over time? Absolutely. Um, Walt Collins, who's a 
famous name in the industry. Um, when I walked in and we funded um, his business back in the 2003, 2005 era, um, and he was teaching me the way he underwrote a portfolio, he had 24 pages, all with different fonts and different structures. And I said, well, what is this? And his, he looked at me, he goes, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Mm -hmm. He said, these are the 24 different ways that I've been hurt on a portfolio. And each time I get hurt, I learn something new and I add a new way to monitor for it. So once he ended up buying a portfolio, it was all senior citizens. So he began to look for ways to capture date, dates of birth. Um, another time it was all you know, I, I forget what the story was, but each one of the 24 pages had a story behind it and a lesson learned. And it's really experience in the industry that allows you to underwrite. Um, I remember there was a company back in 2007 showed up at the DBA in Las Vegas and it was a public company. They walked in, they walked up to a group that I was in and the guy goes, hi, I'm from a public company. We have a billion dollars to invest in this company. You know, don't you want to talk to me? And we looked at him and said, there's a lot of guys with money. What knowledge do you bring about the space? Mm -hmm. They lasted about a year and a half and they went bust in the space. So knowledge is critical. Um, surrounding yourself with people who can tell you where the hidden opportunities and the hidden risks are, are very critical. So once then you, you settle on best practices for underwriting and you're confident that deck buyers, um, you know, knew how to do that right and they had a routine for that. The other piece you mentioned earlier then was servicing. You know, then you, you, you decide on the price, liquidation curve and so forth. You justify that. But then you said, you know, there are also um, things that you see about good collection agencies. What, what are some of the common denominators of the good collection agencies out there? And I assume in your role as CEO of Allgate, you know, you outsource a lot of the servicing to multiple collection agencies in the industry. So how does Erwin Bernstein then draw the kind of ideal profile of a well-run uh, agency that generates great results for its customers? Collection agencies uh, or collection agents is not something that many people aspire to be. You know, I, I've never met someone who at five years old said, I want to be in the collections industry, but it's an entrepreneurial industry. Um, there's an opportunity to make money. There's an opportunity to help the economy. And there's a, an opportunity to help consumers get back on their feet. You, when you walk into a shop, you want to see that there is a spirit of compliance, a spirit of wanting to help people. And you want to see a spirit of camaraderie within the organization. I walked into a shop once where um, the managers were in a cage elevated five feet above the floor and there was glass around them and they were watching everything. Um, it almost looked like it was a jail. And as I walked through the floor, collectors were sleeping. Collectors were playing crossword puzzles. Collectors were doing everything but doing collections. Um, that was I, a unique culture. <laughs> that, that was Yes. And that's a company that's still around today. Okay. Um, but the managers are in glass cage literally in a glass cage my next visit after that i went to a smaller shop where the owner knew every collector by name at the beginning of every quarter he would sit down with the collector and say how much of a bonus are you looking for today 
or for this quarter? And they would say $3,000. What are you going to do with that $3,000? I'm going to buy a new car. This gentleman would write a check, post date it and pin it on everyone's desk so that every day when they walked in, they knew what they were working for. Um, and he would walk around and say, um, Hey Mike, how's that new car looking? Now, how you doing mm -hmm. on it? Mm -hmm. And there was a, they made a fun atmosphere. Um, they worked hard to not only be responsive to clients, but also responsive to consumers. One of the things that's changed over the years is you can't beat a consumer up. Um, you know, it used to be get them on the phone and let's intimidate them and, and frighten them. Today, it's very easy for a consumer to say, please don't call me again. You get one chance. So looking forward at what's a good portfolio, it's a portfolio that you can verify the information easily. You can get access to media easily. When a collector gets on the phone, his first job is not to collect. Today, his first job is to build a rapport with the consumer, mm -hmm. create a trust so that the consumer is willing to continue the dialogue. And then after that trust is built individually, you can then give the consumer confidence that the account truly is in your shop. You know about the account. You can help them work through any problems. And then you can reach a resolution that will work for the client and also for the consumer. Well, I have to say, I just learned something new about Erwin Bernstein just now. And, and you know, Erwin has uh, terrific analytical skills and we've looked at portfolios together over the years. And I didn't realize that you were so sensitive to these cultural issues of agencies and companies. Now, how did you translate then those soft features, those soft aspects of culture to hard results of collection agencies, of collections? How Can you describe the connection between that? The, the soft features are how you decide whether you want to do business with someone. Mm -hmm. Once they get past that exam, ultimately there has to be performance. Right. So we expect daily uploads of performance and we do monitor people. One of the things that um, historically in this industry, you would learn a collection agency's performance 15 days after a month was done. Okay. Too late to do anything. You know, so if on December 15th, I'm finding out November's collections, I can call you up and say, Michael, you did a poor job in November. Mm -hmm. what, what can I do about it, Erwin? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's passed. So we have daily sharing of information with us. And we also are much more open than many other firms because every agency who works for us knows the other agencies working similar paper and they see their results every single day. So what we try to do is we try to instill a sense of, once again, camaraderie and a little bit of competition. Mm -hmm. No agency wants to be last. Right, right. And frequently a debt buyer will be accused of making up a curve that's un unrealistic. Mm -hmm. But by sharing everyone's results, if you have one horse in the game, mm -hmm. everyone else has to follow that horse. Mm -hmm. And that's how we encourage the performance. So Allgate then looks both at the productivity statistics of collection agencies when you decide which ones you want to outsource to, but also it sounds like that Erwin Bernstein looks at the intangible cultural values of each agency as well, because you see the connection between the culture and the results. Yes. So, and Michael, you know, I, I can't avoid 
discussing politics. Oh, I've, Irwin, I've been, <laughs> please. Uh oh. I've I've been accused. I've got to warn being, our audience here. Get I've, ready. I've been accused of being farther to the left than most of the industry. Um, well, that's I, a fact. That probably right. is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, you don't have to be a tough guy in order to do well in business. Um, and I do think that we do have a responsibility to our neighbors, to our community. And part of that is trying to recognize the need, you know, being empathetic to a consumer, uh-huh. I think is very valuable. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I think this is wonderful, Erwin, <laughs> because you, you know, Erwin, you know, and I'll make a confession here. When I first was told about Erwin Bernstein, everybody said, he's got really sharp elbows sharp elbows and you know by nature what you do especially in the compliance area and then in some of the workout uh situations that you've been involved in you have to have sharp elbows you have to be tough and you have to be very objective but there is a soft side to Irwin that i I hadn't really known before until this uh, interview here today that i'm uh you know astonished that uh there's a there's a big heart there uh behind those uh those with those sharp elbows there is a big heart (laughs) Um, and I appreciate you saying that, but going, it really ties back to me saying to you, I'm much more concerned about being able to look someone in the eye and shake their hand than the contract. On one hand, I'm, I will start, if I trust someone, I will trust them, but my elbows are going to get really sharp if I find that I made a mistake. Right. That they're abusing that trust. Correct. Yeah. And lots of times, you know. Yes, I will. I will be very tough, and I will get nasty at that point. Well, this is a wonderful segue to the next topic I wanted to talk about, was which is compliance. And you've got a, a second company called CMS Services that you founded last few years, uh, where you offer your uh, consulting expertise uh, and services to both collection agencies and debt buyers. Um, could you comment a little bit about how you got that started and kind of what your goals and objectives are of that business? And then also, secondly, could you comment on how you see, you know, the regulatory environment evolving? Obviously, it's had a giant impact on both debt buyers and collection agencies. And uh, I think the consensus in the industry, obviously, is that it's been very extreme. And do you see that continuing? And how can we manage through that? So those are two questions. Um, well, starting with you know, is regulation, you know, what do I think about regulation? I came from the futures industry. We had the worst words in the English language, the C word, you know, commodities mm-hmm. um, and futures, the F word. Our, the reputation of that industry in the 70s was almost as bad as our collection industry is today mm-hmm. in some circles. And the industry in that case got together and said to the government, we would like to clean ourselves up we would like to create some sort of a regulatory scheme. Mm -hmm. And working with the government, they got the permission to set up a self-regulatory organization. Um, I think regulation that is sensible is good for everyone. One of the examples of that that we expect to see is changes in the rules as to what creditors can put into a contract. It has always floored me in this industry that creditors would put in contracts that we they do not rep and warrant the validity of any account balances. Uh, but there was always some buyer willing to take the chance. So no one had the ability to force the big banks to delete what was a ridiculous line mm-hmm. in a contract. Mm-hmm. 
since we wouldn't do it ourselves, the government has now stepped in and done that. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. Uh, what, what I find fascinating is we're all terrified of the CFPB. I gave a speech recently to a network of creditors, um, and I entitled it The Race to the Bottom. The regulators have not come out with a single new law since the CFPB has begun, but the banks are tripping over each other to prove to the government that their requirements are stricter than the next. Mm-hmm. I said to them, "Why we don't compete on compliance. It's an expectation that we are compliant. Why don't we get together as an industry? Why don't we figure out what we believe is necessary to comply with the law and let's set a you know, let's create a set of standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did CMS get started? I was asked by a number of debt buyers, by some banks to do some CFPB readiness reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, in doing those reviews, I found that, so that was the beginning of, my compl- of the consulting part of the business. But in doing those reviews, I was finding that everyone was gathering and sharing and reviewing the material with using different tools. Um, and what you gathered was a snapshot in time. It was very seldom current uh, because things change. Licenses expire, new complaints come in, policies and procedures have to change. Um, the CFPB has given us an audit guideline. I created a web portal that is based upon the CFPB guidelines and allows someone to upload all their policies and procedures, upload all their licensing upload their complaints in an organized fashion that is uniform, hopefully for the entire industry and also for the regulators. And people can get the material in there, easily share it, easily update it, and then get back to performance. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been the focus of my business for much of the last year. And what do you see in the future for uh, regulations ahead? I think that uh, for the industry we have to stop taking the position that we're only going to focus on destroying the CFPB and closing it down. We have to come up with um, ways to work with the regulators that allow the industry to, th- to prosper while also protecting the consumer. And there are ways to do that. You know, I recall a few years ago, Erwin, at uh, the ACA Fall Forum, I think it was, uh, was it 2009 or 2010, you gave a an outstanding presentation on the uh, chondritic curve. curve. Yes. So um, I assume you still believe in these macroeconomic trends uh, along the lines of uh, Nikolai Kondratiev. And uh, what what do you see in terms of future trends now? We're we're wrapping up 2015. It was kind of a volatile year in some respects, certainly in regulations. But uh, I don't economically. I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't think it was volatile, but what what do you see happening economically and how will those economic trends that you see affect our listeners? Well, well, it's, it's funny that you brought up Kondratiev and these, these economic cycles, because when I listen to political discussions or when I listen to complaints about regulation, it is all part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, the theory of Nikolai Kondratiev, who was a Russian economist in the 1920s, who was killed by Stalin in the 30s. Yeah, because he said something that Stalin didn't want to hear. Correct. Right. Um, it is that for the history of the world, we have go- the capitalistic societies have gone through boom and bust cycles. Right. And they generally take three generations. And the reason they take three generations, it's while you're 
you know, we forget the lessons of the past and we tend to repeat them. Mm -hmm. Um, But the credit cycle begins with, um, it starts with winter, which is what we are, some people will argue we're still going through. Um, There was too much credit built up in society, in the government, in in the private sector. We had to clean it out. There was no way to pay it all off. Mm -hmm. So there's been a forgiveness of debt. Mm -hmm. And traditionally what happens after there's been an excess excess amount of debt created, people become more conservative, um, more regulation. You know, there were terrible things that happened in the 2000s. So we're going to regulate the industry. We're going to regulate the world. We're going to make certain that this never happens again. Credit becomes much harder to get. Um, Slowly, people begin to forget the lessons. Credit will become more available. Regulations will be considered onerous Mm -hmm. and they'll be loosened and the cycle will begin to grow once again. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's, if anyone's interested there, if they email me, I'll be happy to send them the presentation. Um, I wrote it because the economist who was supposed to show up was asked to speak on Squawk Box on MSNBC and for some reason <laughs> thought that was more important than Fall Forum. Um, but I, I wrote it as a lesson for my children because you can't look to the, you can't look at what's happened in the past but look forward and where the opportunities are. And I do think that we've taken a lot of the excesses out of the economy. Um, what we consider as being frustrating is, and unprecedented has happened in the past, um, but that is in the past. You know, it's happened before in past cycles, it's happening again, but there's opportunity ahead of us. Our kids are going to have a wonderful period of growth ahead of them. We have a wonderful period of growth ahead of us. Um, and the regulations, it's like a pendulum. They will swing left and right, but eventually we'll find a center Left ground. and right. That sounds political, Erwin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, is this a forecast for the election of 2016? I have no forecast. Um, let's talk, as we wrap things up here, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about Erwin Bernstein, the man, and uh, what <clears throat> makes you tick. Well, what's your passion? What gets you excited uh, when you get up in the morning? What? I am I'm blessed with five children. Um, and today my passion is watching the successes of my five children. Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. Number two, I really think with CMS services, with the portal, with the compliance work that we're doing, I have the ability to have a positive impact on the small and mid-sized debt buyers in, and agencies in the industry. Um, we need solutions that will allow them to be compliant but also profitable. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've created a, a structure and an environment that will allow these companies to continue to prosper mm-hmm. and will give the regulators and the creditors comfort that they can do business with small and middle-sized companies and be comfortable that the laws will be followed and the performance will also be there. Also, you know, over the last, what, 12, 13 years you've been in this industry, like many of our entrepreneur listeners, you've had a lot of ups and downs with the businesses you've run. How have you handled adversity? And do you have any interesting stories on how you've overcome certain obstacles as you were building these businesses along the way, including Ravinia? Um, As the owner, there have been years that I have funded my employees and, you know, not taken anything for myself. And there's been years where they've been much more um, profitable and, and a much better opportunity. I think you have to, you know, let's talk about luck. You know, and a lot of people look at folks in our industry or in life and they say, gee, he was really lucky. 
Um, what I've come to learn is that luck is recognizing an opportunity and seizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, we all are presented with opportunities every day. It's just, are, are our eyes and our ears open enough to listen to them, recognize them, and to know what to do with them? Mm-hmm. So as I've gone through the, the down periods, I've tried to keep my eyes open, look for that opportunity, figure out how I'm gonna zig or zag mm-hmm. to move forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what keeps you awake at night? I mean, as an entrepreneur, you know, there are always issues and- uh, I'm almost 60, there's all sorts of reasons. <laughs> that, <you> know, <laughs> well, let's not go there, but. Uh, <laughs> okay. There, there is yeah. uncertainty. Uncertainty, yeah. Um, but you're the master of risk management, so that's mastering uncertainty. and. You know, we've written uh, articles in our company about the certainty of uncertainty. It's it's everywhere and it never goes away. Well, but, and it's why I've tried to yeah. steer my own business. Um, and I, I think, you know, so how does someone move forward? I made the comment to you that I started out in this industry as a funder, as a risk taker. Right. And I look deep into myself and I recognize that I'm a much better risk manager than risk taker. Mm-hmm. So I steered my business Mm-hmm. to focus and to be geared to what I was best at in my yep. mind. Uh-huh. And I think that's going to be what make, makes me successful. And it also makes me much more comfortable every day. Right. It so helps me to sleep at night. Focused as a risk manager, not a risk taker. Right. And everyone has, uh-huh. each person will have a different personality. Right. Um, look at your personality, determine yep. who you are, right. and try to find something that meets your yeah. Profile. Yeah. You know, when we were walking in to start this interview earlier, you told me we were talking about what you're reading and you told me you just finished reading The Boys in the Boat. It is uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal story of the boys that um, from the Washington crew team who went on to win the 1936 Olympics. Um, it was the Olympics held in Germany. Um, it talks about these boys who came from very different um, lives um, most at that point, crew was normally a Eastern sport, um, the elite. These guys were worried about how they were going to make it to school. They were worried about the food they were going to eat. Um, but it <laughs> talked about they didn't have food mm-hmm. and how they would scrounge for food and how they would scrounge for a place to live. And these boys overcame adversity and they learned that only by working together and being in tune with each other and sensitive to each other could they exceed their possible expectations and reach greatness. Well, right there, I think, are some terrific <laughs> pearls of wisdom. We were talking about, you know, the hard things that they had to do to to win the, you know, the Olympics, and yet they did it by being sensitive to each other, which it's in parallel to what you've been talking about today with the culture of the agencies, the hard metrics that they have to uh, adhere to and, and aspire to, you know, you're the guy with the sharp elbows in the industry, but with a big heart. So I, I think it's a wonderful way to, to wrap up this uh, interview with this fascinating personality here, Erwin uh, Bernstein, CEO and founder of uh, Allgate and also CMS services. Thank you very much, Erwin. Thank you very much. This show is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. To learn more, please visit flockfinance.com.